And good evening, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. For the first time in months, if not a year, we're in the same place at the same time. We are indeed. We're here in sunny, far too sunny, Reno, Nevada. Home of, well, what is it home of? Bad oh, taste of neon. It's a home of Reno, Nevada. I wonder if everybody in Reno is wealthy because of all the neon. It's where you come to shoot a man. Just to watch him die. Johnny Cash. Uh, and okay. you wake, you wake up the next morning just and feel see. as though you did after the day you had. You and know? we are giving an opportunity for our listeners to just to see him die. <laughs> <laughs> and just to let you all know, we're happy to welcome to the Coot Street Podcast, Alistair Reynolds. Hi, Al. Hi. So did you come to Reno just to watch someone die? I did, I did. Damn, I shouldn't have said that, should I? <laughs> and, who, and who might that be? <laughs> Far too late in the days. Oh, it's okay. I'll die for you by, yeah. the, by the time the Hugo Award ceremonies are over. Um, but, um, well, okay, this is one of the few podcasts. Actually, Al, you're very fortunate to be with us. This is the first podcast that Jonathan and I have done face-to-face in, what, a year? Oh, longer. Longer, longer than, than a year. Longer. Yeah. Okay. And We've only done very few. But we've talked about you a lot on these podcasts. Rightly so. <laughs> and rightly so, absolutely. Because uh, we've had... Jonathan has done two now two anthologies on versions of the new space opera. Locus, which is a magazine I write for, has done a special issue, not recently, on the new space opera. And in each case, your name comes up very prominently in terms of having reinvented a classical tradition in terms, do you see yourself as a new space opera writer? Not, not, no, I don't see, I mean, I have a sort of complex uh, relationship with space opera, so uh-huh. I've been thinking about it, reading it, writing it for years and years, and I slightly draw back from the idea that there was a sharp discontinuity between the old space opera mm-hmm. and the new space opera. I think there's, you know, it's always been there. Right through the 70s, 80s, yeah. 90s. I don't think it ever went away completely. When I started getting interested in writing science fiction, you know, there were guys like Varley yeah. writing kind of space operatic stuff, Sterling. There was always a space opera tradition, but the space opera as originally defined by, who was it, 1942 or something? It was uh, Wilson Tucker. Wilson Tucker. He coined the term... And he, as a, it was disparaging, it was you know, sort of it referred to, and I sort of paraphrase from memory, you know, the old hacking, grinding space opera, you know, space yarn. Uh, you yeah. know. And the thing was, as I understand it anyway, the pejorative went away quite quickly because really what it talked about was a space adventure. Mm-hmm. That was that was the heart of of what space opera was. Um, I, I tend to agree with you. I've, I've probably devoted more time thinking to this than I really ever wanted to. You know, is there such a thing as a, a real new space opera? Well, and the first thing to remember before you think about it is when did the new, the new space opera, not as a form of literature if it exists, but as a concept, mm-hmm. come around? And it, it evolved from the whole interzone editorial for calling for right, radical right. hard SF back yeah. in the early 80s, but it's really a, a byproduct of the movement movement of the late 90s when people were looking for movements to create. You know what I mean? Where all of a sudden you're, you're having like. Uh, Mike Harrison was coming up with a new weird and somebody wants something else and the, the new space opera was one of those things but I, I tend to agree with you I think that what's happened is the space adventure has always been it, it's, it's the core central thing of science fiction and yes it's evolved and yes there, there, was a, there was a sea change in it I think but I don't know that there's an actual new space opera that then over, overwhelms old space opera my question to you is oh, go ahead I'm sorry well I, I mean w- we seem to be... I mean, it's like 10 years since I was on a panel that was discussing the new space opera. Right. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like discussing Skiffle it, yeah. in the 70s mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that. But, uh, I mean, I can, you know, I can go back to, say, David Zindel's uh, Nevenus, which I think came yes. out in 1988. That's right. a long time ago. And that, was that, that, to me, was clearly part of something, mm. uh, a, a dialogue with SF. It, it, it was a book that... Okay, in some in, in some respects, it referenced Wolf, yeah. the new son, but it was very space operatic. Was done mm-hmm. on this enormous Frank Herbert sort of canvas. It, it wasn't something that came completely out of the blue. It was, well, I wonder if it's a, it was the literariness 
that may have made that change because not long after that, uh, Dan Simmons was doing his Indeed. extremely literary, elusive space operas, uh, and yet he knew he was operating out of that tradition. My question is, of the people who invent, when you call a new space opera, that implies an awareness of the old space opera. It implies some conscious response to a Doc Smith or an Edmund Hamilton mm. and that sort of thing. And I'm not sure I've really seen that in your work or in Dan's or anybody else's. I'm, I'm not in dialogue with Smith because no. I've not read Smith. Of course, that's, that's, that's <laughs> I mean, my thought. It's like ancient history. Well, I mean, you can. Well, you can to some degree. I mean, I'm not saying you are, but you can be in dialogue with someone without being in direct dialogue yeah. because you're yeah. in dialogue with them through their descendants. Well, that's true. Yeah. But, that's true. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have put you in that tradition. I mean, clearly. You're more of a Clarkian tradition yeah, writer, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to hold my hands up and say um, my science fiction is a response to reading Clark. And I still think, um, you know, almost everything I do, I, I, I sort of situate it with respect to something that Clark had done. Mm-hmm. Um, but before that, it's, uh, you know, I'm not particularly well read in science fiction written before about 1940. Yeah. <clears throat> But when you're responding to Clark, you're responding to Clark in a way of... It seems to me, I'm going back to your novels specifically, uh, and, and, and the earliest ones, I'm going back to things like you know, mm. Revelation, uh, that Clark had a phenomenal imagination for everything except character. Well, the thing that... The, the, the remark, I, I can't remember who said it, but someone made this observation about Clark that he wasn't... A particular, he wasn't particularly skilled at portraying people mm-hmm. as individuals, but he had a good grasp on the way people behave en masse. He understood mm-hmm. social trends, humanity as a as yeah. a whole, and you know you can point to things like, um, you know, he, he not only did Clark anticipate the telecom, telecommunication satellite, right. he also wrote about porn being beamed in through telecom satellites in in the fifties or something like that. So he had that that. Good science fictional mindset to, you know, to look at the way people behave on mass rather than as individuals. But I, you know, I'll give, I'll defend Clark to the hilt in t- in terms of uh, a. I think he's a, generally speaking a better prose writer than he's than he's often given credit. I think for. that may be true. Uh, and I think he's better at, you know, I think his characters basically within um, within the constraints of the types of book they're in. Mm-hmm. I think they function. Yeah. Uh, I agree, and I'm, I'm going back to... Well, one of the things that is always a test case for me with science fiction is can you remember character names from novels? And if you go back to The City and the Stars or even Against the Fall of Night, mm. we all remember Alvin. That's a name we remember. Is, yeah. uh, and, and and if you forget what he did... And there are not a lot of characters, but of the two or three characters that function in The City and the Stars or Against the Fall of Night, Alvin is very memorable. At the same time... One of the things, every time I go back and look at The City and the Stars, I'm thinking is that actually that novel begins with a VR experience. It does. A post-1995 pre-VR yeah. experience, yeah. which nobody in 1954 had thought of at all. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, he's living out a, uh, a virtual reality game. Mm. And it's, it's dead on. It's, 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 it's dead on, and that book's got... I mean, I, I go back to it time and again. It's got memory uploading. It's got it's got all kinds know, of yeah things that we just came uh, and, and 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 it's not one of the things that I don't know. Is it being read to these days? Do people still? I still read it. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think he 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 was particularly good with names, actually, not just names of characters, but I mean, diaspora. That's diaspora is great. It's a wonderful name yeah. for, for the last right. human city. Um, and, and Clark does that over and over again in a way that, say, Asimov didn't. I was thinking about uh, you know, Asimov's names were, were always sort of a little bit leaden. Well, Cal- Susan Calvin. Yeah. Well, Susan Calvin, Hober Mallow yeah. is my favorite. <laughs> yeah. And there were names which were intended as placeholders. You were intended to remember the name because you were not going to remember the character himself. Yeah. Um, yes. The mule is a great concept yes but as a character he never emerges really at all yeah um, and, and I, I think that Asimov learned that from the pulps I don't think that's a flaw in Asimov I think that's a technique yes. that he learned yeah um, and by the time you get to Clark and th- th- this is something that seems to me you're an inheritor of as well um, there's a really interesting 
studied by Brian Stableford of the Scientific Romance in England. And in it, he identifies a generation of British science fiction writers, Clark, Eric Frank Russell, a few others, who bridged this gap of the Wellesian Stapledonian uh, tradition uh, with the Campbellian tradition. And, and both Clark and Russell were selling more to American magazines than the I, British Well, you, you can certainly point to someone like Steve Baxter, I think, who's and operating Steve, very mm, square. Absolutely. In that, you know, yeah. you, you, you can't put the guy in one, on one side of that uh, fence. He's, he's, no. You know, he's coming from the Wellesian tradition. But very, he's coming from firmly. the American pulp tradition yeah. at the same time. Yeah. And that strikes me as interesting. And it's not jingoistic because uh, both things balance evenly. That, that I, I talked to Brian Aldous once about when he, when he was a kid, he was reading the uh, issues of Astounding that were sent over on ballast as the Lynn Lease program. And that's how you <laughs> learn to read American science fiction when he was a kid. And I thought, well... That's absolutely fascinating, and that explains a lot about where he and a generation of writers came from. Uh, but the, do you think the, the scientific romance tradition, which uh, reached apotheosis with Wells and maybe with S. Fowler Wright and a few others, mm-hmm. is that still alive? And maybe with John Wyndham, I don't know. If I never gave it any thought at all um, uh-huh. until you know, well into my career. I, don't, I ne- never even thought about these things. I, mm-hmm. The idea of should I situate myself on the sort of Gernsbachian side of the continuum or the... Or mm. the well- on the Wellesian side. Yeah, I just want to break into Interzone. That's all I care about. Exactly. And it's, it's only much sort of, you know, much more recently in my career that I start thinking about things like that. Uh, and even, even the idea of sort of making a conscious nod to Clark is something that uh, I think for probably my first four or five novels it wasn't remotely in my thinking. Um, when I wrote Pushing Ice, which was yeah. my sixth novel, I think, I mean, there are sort of conscious touches in there. There's, mm. there's, there are there are things in there that no one's picked up on yet that are little nods to Clark. That are, I was going to say there are things in those novels, and Pushing Ice is a good example, where in a, in a Clark, as a kind of offhand paragraph, this is a cool idea, especially the late Clark novels. You get mm. a sense, this mm. is a cool idea, but I'm not going to develop it because I don't have time. Uh, Imperial Earth and so forth. Yes. Wow, well, yeah. I, I, think, I think it's a little... Imperial Earth is probably a slightly unfair example. I think... Uh, post Fountains of Paradise, and you know the Fountains of Fountains which I, Paradise I would say is his the last, late peak, last yeah. really last yeah. real novel. Yeah. And then by the time the you get to Ghost from the Gant Grand Banks or something, yeah. mm-hmm. it feels like there's sketches for novels he would write if he were younger and yeah. m- more able. Yes, they, they became uh, sort of books composed of chapters. Each each chapter was like one and a half pages. Well, yeah, with, with, and uh, uh, the, the the grand tour thing and so. Mm. Uh, but the thing is, when the reason I think of pushing ice is that um, that is a Clarkian idea, mm. but it developed in a way that Clark would never have spent the time to develop it. Well, the way I one of my sort of issues with space opera and where I sort of try and draw a line between. It's very easy to, 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 to point to a science fiction novel that has, say, a galactic or an interstellar setting mm. and say that's space opera. But I think space opera has that melodramatic element, mm. melodrama. And Clark generally shied away from that. I, I would think. never have said that he ever wrote space opera, yeah. or if he I did, mean, he did it very rarely. Because he didn't appreciate opera. Well, opera is excessive, it's melodramatic, it's over yeah. the top, it's coloratura. And he did not feel comfortable no. with that kind of material. He didn't. I mean, my, my, I mean, again, I'd probably reread his books and find I'm completely wrong. But I don't remember that there were, you know, there were not that many villains in a, in, in no, Clark's work. The not at all. Space itself was the adversary, mm. generally speaking. Uh, you don't get uh, clear, dis- you know, there are no bad guys as mm. such. And yet, there's a compulsive readability. You know, I, I couldn't put those books yeah, down. Yeah. Even though I couldn't either. Oh, yeah. I think there's a, but but one of the things that uh, that Clark was able to do, maybe better than anybody, because Heinlein didn't do this either, was just to pup, pummel you with ideas, pummel you with the ideas that you thought this is phenomenal, and this goes back to the beginning of his career. I remember reading Against the Fall of Night, mm-hmm. uh, some of the short stories in Reach for mm-hmm. Tomorrow. They're all one idea stories essentially, uh, and. What they did for a young reader like me was to stimulate the imagination. Like, I would really like to follow up on this. And that's what mm-hmm. made them work. You couldn't see... 
he didn't follow up on these things, by and large. And in a way, that's what stimulates your own imagination, is that he doesn't give you everything. No, he asks questions. He asks questions, yeah. exactly. Well, is that there's, I mean, I think right at the end of Deep Range, which of course most most of that novel takes place underwater. Yeah. And the protagonist is a, he's, he's like an astronaut who's had some traumatic experience, mm-hmm. I think, and he's gone underwater and you learn about the farming and all that. And I think almost on the last page he goes back into space and you learn that they've got anti-gravity technology mm-hmm. all of a sudden. Mm. <laughs> but again, it's just that little throwaway... Yeah. That's what he was very good at, throwaways. Intrusion of, of, oh. of something into the book. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And I remember reading that thinking, wow, I mean, anti-gravity. Yeah. You know, a rocket that doesn't need flames coming out the bottom of it. And as you say, it, it just pushes you into, into... It's interesting to look at the deep range in comparison to Frank Herbert's Under Pressure. Uh, which was published under the name Dragon in the Sea. Yeah, that's what I read. That's yes. right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and Herbert saw the potential of a thriller. Her- Herbert was writing a World War II novel, essentially. He was writing The Deep Six or something like, like that. And with, with, with a lot of technological trappings. But he did, he did not slingshot you into an imaginary future the way Clark did. Oh. Uh, and Clark, was, Clark knew his way around underwater probably is way better than Herbert did. Yes, uh, but he was fascinated with this as a um, launching pad for the imagination, rather than a realization of the imagination. Um, and that, Her- that was Herbert's first novel. I'm not picking on Herbert. And actually, I enjoyed Under Pressure quite a bit when it came mm. out. Uh, but it didn't do what you said in the last chapter when you realized this is only a small part of a huge yeah, future yeah, which yeah. you have only yeah. begun to imagine. Yes. Well, I mean, the other thing I, I, I took from Clark as a, as a kid was the sense that no writer I'd encountered at that point was better at making me want to read the next chapter. Mm. He would set something up, some narrative hook that mm. was just unbearable. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I remember sort of sitting in a, in a caravan in the Lake District reading, I think it was Rendezvous Rama, but could equally well have been mm. uh, um, City in the Stars. And just being... You know, I, I cannot imagine anything more exciting <laughs> than this book that I'm reading now. I suppose we probably all have that universal experience with science fiction at mm. some point. It's why yeah, we oh yeah. why we fall in love with the field. But sure, but there's a, there's a cliffhanger. You're right. The chapter and you do this very well, by the way. Where you can write a last sentence at the end of the, because I know this. I'm doing this right now for the novel I'm reading. And you read the end of the chapter and think, thank God, thank God, I'm at the end of the chapter because now I can go to sleep. And then you think. <laughs> Fuck it, that last sentence is going to make me go on to the next chapter. Yes, except for the novel I think you're now reading, it's well, not necessarily doing that. It's that's not doing story. that, but that's a conversation we'll have later. That's a conversation we'll have later. One thing that occurred to me is the first time I met you, we were in San Jose in 2002. Right. Okay. And I think it actually would have been at the interview that Charles and, uh, did uh, at the time. And when we did the, the things we talked about, I recall, were the two really big issues confronting the science fiction field right at that time. There was the whole uh, singularity thing and, and, and yep. accelerando, and there was the Fermi paradox. Yep. And I recall mm-hmm. we talked about the Fermi paradox some, in some detail. But I'm just curious to think, you know, what do you think the, the, the questions that, or challenges confronting a science fiction writer are today, given the world has moved on another 10 or 12 years the perceptions of urgency in the world have changed, and so the kind of stories maybe you need to tell or want to tell evolve. And the economic assumptions of the world must have changed. Well, uh, for me, there, there are sort of two issues. One is that what I write, I suppose, it's something that I think Gardner Desoir often talks about, like core science fiction. Mm, yeah. And mm-hmm. I feel that what we would point to as core science fiction has really shrunk yeah. over the last 10 years. That's no, my no, perception no, anyway. Do you mean the volume of it being written, or yeah. do you mean it's well, well, the, the, the breadth of its vision? No, no, it's just the volume of it being written, yeah. and, and at least in terms of its um, relative strength within the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we've got things. I mean, even even on sort of you know awards for science fiction, there are now books that are read and discussed as if they were science fiction which we probably wouldn't have considered science fiction 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm. Books about magic and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, and what I do is basically straight science fiction. Yeah. You know, I'm, not, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not 
um, you're not transgressing age, genres. You're not a new age writer. You're not an interstitial no. writer. No, you're a exactly. science fiction writer. Yeah. And yeah. Ted Chiang says the same thing about yeah. himself. Yeah. He has not like, liked... I mean, for me, that's not uh-huh. accepting... It's not sort of... Uh, um, a, a, a sort of lack of ambition. It's mm-hmm. something that I, you know, I think there's something quite potent about science fiction. Tr- taken seriously, mm-hmm. it does yes. straight, and there just seems to be less of it around now. I mean, there, yeah. there is still plenty of really good science fiction. I don't yeah. have a problem. You know, I cannot keep up with what's out there. Sure, but I do have a, feel, a sense that the field as a whole has sort of shrunk a bit. Is that because so, the educational? I, I know in the states, at least, oh, one of the problems that not only science fiction writers but historical fiction writers come up against is readers who simply have no idea what they're talking about. In other words, you have a a good example. Greg Egan's new novel is based on an alternate physics. You reverse a couple of equations and you make the speed of light variable. Mm -hmm. And unless you're dealing with a readership who has some concept of the speed of light as a universal constant, that whole series makes no sense. Yeah, and there are people out there who aren't entirely sure that the Earth goes around the sun. Well, there's that. We've got 39% of Americans living uh, today who believe in angels, and 47% yeah, live in... How do you write science fiction for a post, post-scientific, post-scientific yeah. world? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I've just read Zoo City, and I thought it was absolutely magnificent. Mm-hmm. But it, to me, it's sort of... Um, you can kind of hinge an, in, an interesting argument about what, what we mean by... we by science fiction these days right. I mean yeah. in what sense is Zoo City a science fiction novel I mean it's a damn good novel yeah. yeah but it's a book predicated on you know on a world in which magic works in which shamanism works mm. you, we can't get there but it balances against its whole biotechnology yeah. stuff right. which is at the very least science fiction looking yes yeah. you know, well, it yeah. was in a previous uh, for a reverse novel because this came up with the uh, Crawford Awards for a fantasy novel this year and we considered Zoo City basically because Moxieland Look like science fiction right. a lot more than Zoo City does, yeah. uh, and and the problem I have with that is that if you have an audience that can't tell the difference, you have a problem. Yeah. If you have an audience that appreciates the difference, you've got a readership. Okay. Um, I mean, the book that sort of started me—I don't know—not not questioning this, but sensing that the sort of boundaries were beginning to break was Pedido mm-hmm. Street Station, mm-hmm. because this was it was shortlisted for the Clark, and that was yeah. the first first time sort of China Medieval was on my radar right. and I loved it and I still love it right. um, but it's it's a difficult book for me what because it's a fantasy novel it's written a fantasy by someone novel. Writing, a sci- writing a science from a science fictional point of view in a way it's a fantasy novel that's science fiction it pushes movie? certain buttons yes. as a science fiction writer yeah, I enjoy right. and it's got robots in and things like that yeah. more importantly it's got a character who's functioning as a working scientist in a, in a fantasy yeah. cosmos mm-hmm. and the way that China kind of handles the scientific method is very compelling and, yeah. and it feels real so in, you know you can kind of say okay I'll give that book as, give it the nod right. as science fiction because it's it kind of hand, it treats science seriously it's, it's, it's serious yeah. about the scientific method and I could say the same same thing about Kraken or Kraken yeah. say, which, yeah. which again it's basically a fantasy novel but it sort of makes some interesting points about Darwinism yeah. But um, how far one should spread that net, I'm not clear. Well, I don't know. And that makes it's quite an old-fashioned, unpopular viewpoint, yeah. In a way, but that's that's just me. Let me ask you a, a core science fiction question then. Yeah. Um, if, say, Heinlein wrote a science fiction novel in 1952, he would he could sit there and he could extrapolate a future society to get to you know, a, a problem that would be resolved within the course of a book. And, and do it in a very neat, clear, science fictional way. And when, in fact, one of the, the great attractions, I think, about science fiction is the confronting and attempting to analytically understand a problem that, you, that you're faced with in, in the context of story. Do, does the science fiction toolkit still work? Well, it does for me, in terms of... I mean, in, I mean, yeah. does that story toolkit work to un- unpack the kind of stories we we need to be telling today? I think it does. Yeah. I, I think that there's never, I mean, science fiction, if, if it's had any validity, any usefulness, I think it's still as valid yeah. and useful as it's ever been. I mean, I, I despair of this argument that is trotted out occasionally, where people say, "Well, um, the real world is changing mm. too quickly, technological." change is happening too rapidly 
science fiction is now outmoded because it can't keep up. And mm. I said, this, right, this exactly. is rubbish. Yeah. Someone who was born in 1850 yeah. would have lived to see, you know, the, 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 the world changing. Oh, unimaginable. Conceivably. Well, well, look at, uh, well, look at uh, Jack Williamson. He's yeah. born in 1905 or 19... something like something that. Like yeah, that. He's and, and, and he he, he travelled in a covered wagon. Well, he's, he's not over he's a hundred. No, he's not over a hundred. He, he was a hundred, no, but not now because he's dead. <laughs> no, but he did. We, we were in 1907. Well, he, yeah. he, 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 he travelled by a covered wagon to Mexico during the end of the. Yeah. Um, but but pioneer. he saw them roll yeah. out right. street lighting. Right. He saw them yeah. roll out paved roads. Right. He yeah. saw them bring in motor vehicles. I mean, yes, they existed, but the extent to which they came at the, the and he saw the rate of change in his lifetime yeah. almost go asymptotic. You know, I mean, look at Wells. Wells lived into the atomic age. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. we don't tend to think of that. We tend to think yes. of him as sort of shutting down around 1900. Yeah, but the guy lived to see the jet age and the atomic yeah. age. I will say, I, I don't know what you think about this. I, I mean, I, I think this, the science fiction toolkit does work and is just as relevant as it ever was. I do think that a lot of people seem to get attracted by the fact that there's a broad you know, range of toolkits available and so they can play with them all, which is perfectly valid, and so they create a different spectrum of stories and that then those stories, despite whatever value they have, they don't answer the science fictional questions anymore. Or to a much lesser extent yeah. than they once did, and e- even in the Greg Egan kind of a novels, which are sort of notes in a physicist, you know, physicist handbook, sort of done for fun. You know, th- yeah. the other bit of it isn't there as much. I mean, because even you know, I, I have tremendous admiration yeah. for Egan, but mm-hmm. there's obviously a, a, a difference of mode between a story like Learning to Be Me, yeah. which is making some really well. Mm. Important points about oh, the theory of mind, or something like that. Right, yeah, and obviously a clockwork rocket is operating mm, in, a, yes. in, a, in a somewhat different fashion. But um, no, I, I, I think um, we, we, you know we need science fiction as much as we, we've ever done. I mean, for, for me, the, the the sort of the way I sort of choose sort of science fiction from fantasy. Science fiction is the literature of the possible. Mm-hmm. We can point mm-hmm. we can point to a science fiction world, and we can establish a roadmap of how we get from there to there obviously when we're looking back at a science mm. fiction work written 60 years ago yeah. that roadmap may not be valid but if it's you know a book about colonising Mars there are clear steps we could take from the here and now to get us to Mars mm. or well yes and no I mean because uh, this is an issue that's going to be under discussion I think a lot next year how we get from here to there in a kind of Absolute rational sense. Nothing, nothing in this future violates what we now know to be a possibility. That's a different question. From do we get from here to there within somebody's lifetime? In other words, when Heinlein was writing um, uh, his, 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 his juveniles, yeah. uh, he very clearly described, as did Doc Smith before him, if we build this rocket and then do this and then do this and then do this, eventually we will land on Mars. And now you have a. a, a you have a huge chunk of science fiction that is dealing with, well, at some point in the past we developed FTL travel no matter what physics says, and we have terraformed various worlds no matter what economics says, and essentially you've got no connection between what no. we can do now and yeah. how do you get to that I, I agree, and, and that's why such you know a large chunk of what is generally labeled space opera is basically just fantasy, isn't it? Of course, it's fantasy. The first thing we'll do is we'll leap ahead... Yeah. Five hundred years. Mm-hmm. So anything, re, any real connection to our world disappears. Right. And then we will break the laws of physics by using hand wavium. Yeah, and we'll have mm-hmm. some feudal kingdoms on right, that planet. Exactly. And, you know, exactly. We'll bops around. It'll all be lots of fun. Yeah. But it really is f- it's fantasy. Not, with, but a, a te- techno fantasies. It's got no. It's not speculative fiction anymore. Is no, it? no, it, no, not really. It, it, it may well be fun. Is there a time limit on how far you can break? You know, break with today. And still keep engaged. You know, like, you know, when, how far can you leap ahead and, and, and have it not break? You know, I mean, is it 25, 50, 100, 200 years? Um, you know, I've seen a number of books which are looking to. In fact, what I've seen is I've seen a number of books starting to decrypt what happens after global warming. Very little discussion, really, of exactly what's going to happen through global warming. Uh, and all that kind of thing because that's all kind of a bit depressing and mm. not, not a very fun kind of a thing um, and then the great leaps forward you know 
Well, I mean, I I think it was maybe in one of John Clute's essays, and he was, I don't know, it was years back, and he may well have been. I think he might have been reviewing one of the the, the Mars trilogy yeah. books or something like mm-hmm. that. And he was making the point that so few science fiction novels give us a clear sense of roadmap between the present yeah. and, exactly. and their imagined yeah. future, yeah, whereas Robinson's books did. Yeah, I mean, okay, it's a roadmap yeah. of the '90s, which is somewhat outmoded now, perhaps. But it was always clear when you were reading those books that the sort of implied background history shone through very clearly. I yeah, think yeah, yeah. I mean, you could kind of see what what had happened, how how we could get from here to there, and that type of science fiction has always appealed to me. Well, I mean, I think Red Mars as a as a book, in some ways, is a profoundly optimistic book about science fiction, because it absorbs. The, the new scientific knowledge about Mars that comes through between 1975 or 1970 and onwards or whatever and finds a way to still live with it and create science fictional stories. It's not, it's it, not just that though, is it? It's also that in the background of the book you've got sort of rec, you know, the real world institutions sure. shaping the geopolitics. You mm-hmm. know, the United Nations is still there, mm-hmm. like NAFTA or something like that is still there. So although it's 150 years in the future it's, mm. it, it's not this Star Trek scenario where you have a sort of reset button, yeah, and we, and we you know, and, and we suddenly go to a magic economy where there's no money. And well, one of the questions that comes up to me with that, and I think uh, Stan addresses this as well as any modern American science fiction writer, is the economics of this sort of thing. Hmm. The thing that struck me about space opera, and it strikes me still about a lot of space opera, is it's different from what happened when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I was thinking, "Wow, we can do that. We can build these machines. We can go to the stars." Now, and it may be my age or it may be the Olympic, I'm thinking, where did the quadrillions of dollars come from yeah. to do this? Yeah. Well, like, didn't somebody on the internet cost out what it would cost to build the Death Star? <laughs> exactly. I mean, just, if you assume this and this and the, yeah. the size of the amount of material cost, it would cost you know, this many you know, tr- trillion, quadrillion dollars kind of thing. And so you could. Yeah, un- you know, be unfeasible to, you know, to, to actually ever construct. And we're going to have thing. colonies on Mercury and Mars, Venus, and we know which novel we're talking about. Well, well, <laughs> no, not even that. I mean, it, it, it's just yeah, you're right. We, we rarely sit there and go, well, okay, we're going to build a spaceship and go go off to Mars. Yeah, and what's it going to cost to build, and will it ever look like? And this is the sort of, as an old sci-fi guy, even though I'm not old, I'm middle-aged, but as an old sci-fi guy, there's a little part of me that still wants a Virgil Finlay rocket to take off. Yeah! You know? And and yet I know that it won't be that. And there won't be some sort of lovely sort of spinning wheel in space like 2001. It's going to be some hollowed-out rock floating there, because that can give you the shielding from the radiation. Because, you know, you go to Mars and, you know, it's not that it's cold as hell. It's not very attractive at all. I mean, it may sort of beggar the imagination, but it's going to kill you very quickly. Um, I mean, there's a great line in the book that I read recently where they were sort of saying, the great thing about Earth is it's the only place where you can stand and look at the sun uh, with, with your naked face and not have it be killed, be killed and by it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which I think is... Yes. So, t- to come around, I don't, don't want to go into too much detail because it's in the future, but where does Blue Remember Earth sit in all this? Because that's, that's the that's next right. question. Yeah. That's... It, it, yeah, it's very much my attempt to, A, get away from space opera in inverted commas mm. so when I started thinking about writing this book I wanted mm. to get away from that the sort of melodramatic stuff I was talking about mm. earlier like no bad guys no conspiracies yeah, right. no killer aliens no, mm. no mutant cyborgs trying to kill everyone but I also wanted to tap into a sense of optimism I felt which is you've got to go back three years now it was um, 2008 I went to the Kennedy Space Centre and I, I went back twice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Saw two shuttle launches, and I had the whole trip around the, um, you know, where you see the you know, the Saturn V laid out, oh, the, yeah, the huge hangars and, the, and the lunar mm-hmm. re- yeah. reconstruction, the lunar landings, and um, yeah, it was like a religious experience for me. Like, I thought, well, at the time, um, Bush was still in power, and he had mm-hmm. he had charged NASA yep. with going back to to the moon and then Mars, right. and the implied time scale for going back to the moon was we'd, we'd be there by twenty twenty. But everyone in the know said, "Oh, you know, it, it'll, yes. it'll really, it'll really be 2019 because that's the 50th anniversary, and they won't want to miss ah, that." Right. So it's just, I thought, you know, I've got to go. I've got to yeah. hitch my yeah. ride to this. Um, I want to write a science fiction novel that taps into that again. You know, it's something about the the, the sense of optimism and the frontier going into the solar yeah. system, doing it realistically rather than um, 
you know, with magic nanotech and sort of right, implausible yeah. amounts of energy. Mm. So I just, just started thinking along those lines. Um, and obviously, as soon as you start thinking about that kind of thing, you start thinking about Clark, you start yeah, thinking sure. about Imperial Earth, Earthlight, all those books where he basically gave us the furniture, I, I suppose, of thinking about space flight. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a big part of it. But I also like this idea of a future that is connected to the present in the sense that there's a there's a, a really clear path between here yeah, and now right. doesn't shirk climate change I've tried to address that in the book mm-hmm. I basically got a copy of New Scientist which had I think the, the the sort of the worst possible scenario for what the world will look like in 2100 yeah. let's just roll with it what if things yeah. really do go really crappy yeah, yeah. but a generation will have lived through that change and it will seem fairly normal to them mm. by the time the book is set so that's one of the things I want to play with the idea that it, it will not feel like some 2012 style catastrophe yeah. it'll play out over decades the world the world yeah, of 150 yeah. years may from now may feel to us it may seem quite alien and strange but to the characters living in it it'll seem mm. like normality in, in if you see me looking skeptically at you, I guess what I, I was trying to think of uh, uh, an analogy that will work. Yeah. You know, just, just sort of when you try and think about how how much will people be recoiling from the events that have taken place, yeah. and if you if we imagine that things won't begin to start to go obviously badly wrong for another ten or fifteen years, yeah. maybe. So say say twenty thirty through mm. to, to 2100, yeah. 2100 Then you go okay. Let's go back to nineteen forty five. How long was Western Europe particularly recoiling in pain from this experience and seeing it as a horrific thing as they walked through the bombed-out streets of Dresden ten years after it had been bombed? You know, how long does it take you to absorb that kind of thing? Particularly since this is going to be—it's like—it's going to be nasty. You know, it's going to be. You know, sudden inundations, little bits of slow seeping inundation, things rotting and falling apart, you know, uh, and then taking out sort of all sorts of weird infrastructure that you know along the way. But is would that necessarily be worse than a century with two world wars and I genocides see, yeah, I, and, I, I, I and don't famines? Know. And, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's going to take a lot to top twentieth century, I think, in terms of. <laughs> well, it's because well, I, was, yes. I, was, I was going to say one of the things that happened culturally and the relationship between war and cultural expression is fascinating because. According to there's Paul Fussell's famous book, The Great War in Modern Memory, which makes an almost persuasive argument that World War One, at least in Europe, is a much more profound moral and psychological shift than World War Two was. Hmm. Um, and one of the arguments is that first of all, and actually Paul Fussell doesn't make this argument, but there was a scholar who's now dead named Warren Weger who wrote a book about called Terminal Visions about the end of the world. He pointed out something which I don't think anybody had pointed out, which is simply numerically, that catastrophe novels prior to about 1920 were all, they were S. Fowler Wright, they were Bulwer Lytton, they were all natural catastrophes. They were uh, posed the conversation virus and Charmian. Sure. Something bad will happen because we can't help it because it's simply post 1920, the, uh, the world ending catastrophes were the result of human action. We uh, we created wars that simply went on and on and on, and there were there were like last war scenarios long before there were atomic weapons. Uh, they had gone back to the twenties and thirties. So suddenly we now realize that the end of the world is something we are going to do, mm. not something that's going to happen to us. And that shift changed. For example, it, it was also accompanied by the shift from utopian writing in the eighteen seventies, eighteen nineties, to dystopian writing starting. In the in, in the in the thirties with, with, with Huxley and eventually Orwell and eventually everybody else. Suddenly, as soon as we take charge of our fate, it basically goes to hell. Mm-hmm. And, and, and 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 the future no longer looks promising uh, until you begin to get people like Clark who says, What? We, yeah, we can do things like that. But the default position in British literature and to some extent in American literature was that the future is horrifying. Mm. And um, or at, at, at the very least, sardonic, which I think mm. is the Wells, the, the, mm. the Huxleyan position. Uh, I will say one of, the, one of the perverse things about a lot of this is that the post-apocalypses almost seem romantic. Um, they became that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Wells' last book was The Mind at the End of Its Tether, which is just not a... 
It's, it's not a novel. It's simply an essay on the world is not going to get any better at all, ever. A work of someone who's really in despair. He's, yeah, he's yeah. in despair. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. despairing work. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing is about, oh, 50 years later, you get Kurt Vonnegut giving a commencement speech, I think, at Bennington, um, with these young, bright-eyed, you know, optimistic, mostly young women, and, and Vonnegut saying, things are going to go on getting worse and worse and worse and never get better again. And that made headlines all over the yeah. States yeah. because it was so shocking and cynical. It was exactly what Wallace had said 50 years earlier. We've all, I mean, within science fiction, I think, uh, over the last few years, there's been a, a debate about the, you know, the value of pessimism versus optimism, mm-hmm. utopianism versus dystopianism. Yeah. Um, you know, and you've had books like The Wind-Up Girl, which is quite a, a grim vision yeah. of, you know, mm-hmm. sort of scarcity, energy-depleted future. Um, I'm interested in... I don't like the idea that science fiction is just telling one story. Mm-hmm. I think that it's too, science fiction is too, too useful and powerful sure, a tool. Sure. I would also say I think it's a very... I, was retract, I don't know if I'd say it was naive, but it's a very simplistic dichotomy that's been picked up, this optimism versus yeah, pessimism. Yeah. Because quite often... It's very hard to talk about it in other... In, in anything other than quite simplistic terms, though, isn't it? Well, 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 it is, but when you start reading the stories that you encounter out there that are, that are being told mm. now, I mean, you could look at it... Um, I don't know if you read Paul Macaulay's novella that was in Asimov's earlier this year, which is set partly in a drowned, submerged Britain. And you could say, that is not... You know, that, that is a negative future. Mm-hmm. And yet the tone of the story is very optimistic. You know, it's people triumphing over their adversity. Yeah. You know, yes, they're experiencing bad things, but they're not bad people. Yeah. They are overcoming it, and life can still be good and worthwhile, and all that kind so of thing. So boy meets girl. Well, yeah. <laughs> the world can go to well, hell. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, You and I have talked about this, but one, one of the conventions for science fiction for the last 15 or 20 years has been the Florida archipelago. Mm. Florida is simply not going to, to exist 50 years from now. And the question is, do you treat that as a dystopian, horrible, awful warning scenario, or do you begin with that as an assumption and write science fiction in the characteristically optimistic vein of, of science fiction, saying, look, yes, the world is going to shit, but we still have the capacity to make some progress out of that world. Yes. Is it incorrect to say science fiction is primarily about problem solving? Be- I, I ask that because, off the top of my head, if it were true, isn't problem solving inherently an optimistic thing to do? Well, I'm not sure if I ever read science fiction thinking of it in problem solving terms. I mean, I always tend to think of you know the sort of classic template of the analog story where you have you know, mm. you know a neatly presented problem, and then the, the, the competent guys. Yeah. Use, use the no, mystical powers of yeah. engineering yeah. Sure, to solve sure. the problem, but um, I don't know. Well, there are two kinds of problem solving. I think that's an unfair question. Fair one, 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 one is the narrative, internal to the narrative, the kind sure. of thing, the cold equations kind of thing, the bright side crossing, the mm. Asimov robot story, where you have a problem which is completely internal to the story. Yeah, that's a different kind of problem from the fact that uh, our climate is going basically to get worse and worse and worse and we can't change that you cannot have a bright scientist or engineer who does something and reprograms the robot and suddenly uh, you know suddenly global warming goes away the science fiction solution to that surely is you you launch some uh, grand multi-generational project that will obviously cost a fortune and involve people who live you know, hundreds of years and are willing to plan for a, a 300 year solution that will return well, yeah. our world to its true garden state kind of or thing. you leave the planet which is one of Octavia Butler's positions well, which we've talked yeah. about before. my problem with that is I think science began to paint a picture that said that whole leaving the planet option really, really, yeah, not so much not for a billion or no. 20 billion people <laughs> I mean does it still emotionally feel like we could you know, they've, they've just shut down the, the space shuttle program. There's not that much, you know, in terms of going out into space. When you go out there, at least unless you start, you know, seriously knocking some rocks around, it's not a lot of. It's not a place you like hang out and spend time. Well, you, 
you know, how long have we been doing things in space? 50 years? Yeah. 60 years? Yeah. You know, that's nothing. You sure. Know, I'll get back to you on that one in 500 years. <laughs> you know. I mean, you know. that's a long And you're saying one of the books that really influenced you was Schismetrics. Yes, yeah. Um, I don't know if you ever saw the... Uh, first edu- the first of the Garden That Is Why Year's Bests. No. Uh, it was done by Blue Jay. There's a Tom Kidd cover, mm-hmm. and it shows this mechanist, uh, you know, sort of metal carapace and all that kind of thing, yeah. just basically sitting like uh, Rodin's thinker on an asteroid with I've a, seen that. a, yeah, a space gap yeah, behind cool. it. Right. Yeah. And see, cool. It's a profoundly romantic image yeah. Yeah. for science fiction, you know, and. That's that's the romance that pulls you into it, sort of like look at that that that's mankind sort of fitting into space on a grand scale rather than some kind of horror story we're being faced with. What what I took from that book was, uh, I mean, if you if you remember it um, in in the sort of the shape of stories, they don't actually go onto the planet's resurfaces mm. very much at all. No, no. They, most of the time, it's in space stations or yeah. habitats, yeah. artificial environments. It's cool enough just to be out there it in is. space, and that's uh, you know, I, for me that's still sufficient motivation. Yeah, I don't think there's a species we will we will, um, you know, a large proportion of the human race will probably still be on the Earth in a hundred years' mm. time. But uh, I don't see any. I mean, nothing that's happened in the last few years has dented my enthusiasm for for spaceflight, or or even you know, I don't see it as any less plausible. Yeah, I mean what sort of decisions by Obama or Bush they're just like temporary little well that was kind of the point I was making earlier the the technological imagination is different from the economic and social imagination of course we can build space stations that look like the ones in 2001 and we can establish moon colonies and Venusian colonies and uh, Mars colonies and so forth and so on that's the technological imagination the economic and social imagination is saying would we do that? Mm. Um, I, and that answer is very much up in the air. I think it is. Can but, we afford to do that? But there's also the, I mean, the, the, the general perception. You, you know, you, you say to people, "Well, here's the uh, here's a pie chart of the, mm-hmm. the you know, American spending. Mm. Um, indicate how much is spent on welfare, military, right, yeah. NASA." People always massively overestimate the amount of money that's actually spent on space. It's a yes. tiny sliver yeah, of the right. pie. So if you took all that money and redistributed it, you'd never notice it. Yeah. By the same token, if you took... I mean, I think someone said that the... Uh, I'm just pulling the figure out of my head now, but uh, you know, the amount of money spent on air conditioning for the, for the, the two ongoing foreign wars yeah. is mm-hmm. more than NASA's budget, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. just ridiculous... Statistics like that. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I can't remember the figures any better than you can. But yeah. when you ask the average American, for example, how much is spent on foreign aid uh, of the gross national product, they, they, the answer is something like forty to sixty percent, and it's in the neighborhood of seven or eight percent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But but the perception of what we do, and again, the perception of the expense of science far exceeds the actual yeah. number. But part of the problem there is that people are comparing. Uh, you have an eight billion dollars science program, and that sounds horrible because we're not—we're only spending forty billion dollars on prisons or whatever. Um, but they're only looking at the raw numbers, not the percentages, mm-hmm. not the proportions. And again, they're not looking at potential return. And all the websites and all the NASA statistics that talk about how, well, look at the economic benefits, the consumer products that resulted from mm. the space program is really bad PR. Because if you start thinking about the fact that we got electric toothbrushes because of Apollo, yeah, it's, it's not like, going to impress people no. anymore. <laughs> non-stick frying pan. Right, non-stick yeah. frying. We got yeah. Teflon now. Yeah. Look, yeah. see, and there's a little frozen yeah. box of ice cream. Yeah, it's like no, but I mean, I think you know the, what I take from it is that we could have the big wheel in space. Yeah, and life on Earth would go on much as it and is now. Does. You know, we would just. Well, well, certainly, certainly, the one thing, and this is essentially what you were saying a moment ago. There's not an immediate path that's, that shows you putting hundreds of thousands of people off the planet no. in the even historical short term. Right. Yeah, we've got a, we've got a long way to go, well, a lot of catching up to do before 2019, haven't we? <laughs> with, our, with the off-world colonies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I actually, there's a book, you, you wrote a story for me for Life on Mars, and that came off, the, you know, leaped off exactly the same uh, bush set of promises. This idea, we could be on, Mar- in, on Mars by 2040. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, 
Yeah, and then, you know, you think Mars twenty forty, and you think, what do you picture? And you're thinking like like, like a big colony thing. Maybe just one of those, those things under domes, but it'd be like a city. No, it'd be yeah. a tin can yeah. buried yeah. under rock. Yes, yeah. two people in it waiting to go home. Yeah, or resigned <laughs> to the fact that they never would. But you'd be on Mars. Do you feel yeah. self conscious about picking dates like that? Somebody did an essay once on on how science fiction writers imagine the future, and they're Three or four ways of doing it. One is you just pick a date and say, okay, yeah. 1999, which is when Bradbury says we're colonizing Mars. Uh, or you pick uh, a, an interval of time, 100 years from the time you're writing, which is what Verne came to do. Or you just pick a, an, ab, an arbitrary number somewhere in the future that doesn't have a date attached to it, but some point in, oh, I don't know, the category for Leibowitz, where you're not, I don't think, given exact dates. Uh, but the problem with the people who pick pick real dates is that if their work is any good that work is still going to be read mm-hmm. past the oh, sell-by yeah. date yeah because um, Cities in Flight I think starts in 2018 exactly they? something like yeah. that yeah it's not going to again they're going to have to get really cracking with those spin pieces <laughs> under Scranton or whatever it is yeah <laughs> But I mean, that's a, yeah, that is a mark of a book that is uh, endured. That, mm-hmm. that which is, I mean, uh, it's something I've thought about also. A science fiction book which is outdated by its own terms must be a pretty important science fiction book, or we we still wouldn't be reading it after it had become outdated. That's right. I think it also shows that a lot of the set dressing in these stories are less important than the fundamental stories that are being told. Mm-hmm. You know, that I mean, yes, it always is a bit anachronistic to read something set. You know, where you know, when we get to nineteen seventy eight. And you're going, yeah. And 1999 has run false for a long time. Yeah. You know, the moon hasn't been sort of spun off into the you know the distant sort of recesses of the solar system or anything. Um, and yet, you know, or, or I mean, nobody sits there really at, you know, with a straight face and says 1984 doesn't work anymore because it's you know right, not it's 1984. Past. And and you know what the weird thing is, 2001 still seems like it's in the future because of that mm-hmm. movie. 2001 is still a possible future. It's not the one we reached. But it's still out there as a possibility. And that's this complete with Strauss Waltz. I have to say, the most most science fictional moment I've encountered in the last 10 years was when my first daughter was born. And she was born in June of 2000. I remember turning around to my wife and saying, based on average life expectancy, she could live to see 2100. Yeah. 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 And you're like, oh my God. Isn't that like the far, far future? I mean, that is. Anything that we read grow, growing up, yeah. that's like out there. That Anything could be happening. Yeah, happening. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a profoundly exciting thing. Well, yeah. I read this, um, this statement uh, a few years ago, and it was a, it was Boeing were looking into the longevity of the seven four seven, which is already you know the seven four seven flew in was it sixty nine fifty years ago now sorry yeah. close to fifty yeah. years ago and there position on this was that someone somewhere will still be operating the 747 in 2075 someone now, whether so they still well, hold that I don't know that's some pretty old that's interesting I don't know but we're operating nuclear power plants with 50 year old designs yeah. sure I mean the B-52 is is 50 year old airframe yeah that's still uh-huh. you know you strip out the avionics you put new avionics in it's good to go for another 50 years. But the big you know? engineering problems are the same. The, yeah. big, yeah. the yeah. big engineering structure yeah. is the same. It's interesting that the A380s are basically being mothballed. You know, and then they're, they, they're the big new planes. And well, but for economical reasons, right? They're, well, they're, no, for technical reasons right. as well. Okay. I mean, Qantas have basically mothballed their entire A380 uh, fleet after um, technical problems. Okay. And there's, you know, to do with the engines and everything. And there's some question that whether they will ever fly those planes again. Really? Which is a really okay. strange thing. Yeah. You, you, don't expect, you don't expect a brand new thing to be quietly set aside and we'll just keep going with what we've been using. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. one of the questions. I mean, uh, first of all, 747s, 737s, whatever, 8th or 80s, by and large, none of those really showed up in science fiction because mm. they're too mundane for science fiction writers to think about. What science fiction writers were thinking about were space shuttles, suborbital yeah. uh, tra- transports, and so forth. The Concorde. And the Concorde came and went, it didn't work. <laughs> well, it did work. It just wasn't. It worked. Money. It wasn't financially quite yes. feasible. But there's a nice bit at the end of. It might be. I think it's distress. Uh, Egan's distress, where we. I think we're definitely into the 22nd century in terms mm. of the internal sort of mm. chronology of the, of the of the story. 
and clearly air travel is pretty much what we as we yeah. experience it today and yeah. at, at the time I remember reading that thinking you know, on one level, one level you can see it as a sort of an act of under imagination but it actually does take some mm, it takes I, some imaginative balls I think it's the opposite I think it's yeah. imaginative courage yeah. um, there was a years ago in 19 oh jeez going back way for I was editing a, a supplement for the Chicago Tribune on the it must have been the uh, 40th anniversary of 1984 and one of the books we were looking at was Jane Jacobs' The Death and Life of American Cities. And of all the people who had been writing when she was writing in the early 60s uh, about the future of the city, she was the one that said, in the early 21st century, cities are going to look pretty much like they do now, except there will be really decaying, awful parts of them, and there will be enormous amounts of poverty. And at the time her book, The, the Death and Life of American Cities, came out, she was considered this radically mm. awful pessimist. And yet, almost everything she said in that book mm. is true today. Yeah. She talked about modern Detroit right. in a way that nobody else wanted to. Yeah. And I thought, this is interesting because what she was thinking about back in the, in, in the late 60s was anti-science fiction. She was thinking about what if things don't change as much yeah. as you guys think yeah. they will. Is, is our popular culture veering away from portraying images of the future and there, 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 it sounds like an odd question to ask but it just, just flashed on you when you're saying that Gary that uh, I, I remember seeing about middle of last year someone dug up an, an old animated thing thing done in about 1955 for the US government uh-huh. and I'm showing you know, cities of tomorrow I saw that and it yeah. was you know sort of, yeah. there are these cantilevered atomic roads where yeah. you're know, hanging off the side yeah. of buildings and, uh, and cars cities, that split in four oh, reassembled cities under the ocean bread birds versus the future yeah. basically all, all, all this yeah. kind of stuff um, and then I just suddenly thought you don't see many conceptual futures done these days well, one of the things that um, I, I reviewed um, a, a non-fiction book recently Michio Kaku's Physics of the Future mm-hmm. and a lot of the sort of near future predictions in that book, I, one of the points I made in my review was that it's kind of stuff we've been seeing in the media mm-hmm. yeah. for the last 10, 12 years anyway. And I was thinking about films like Minority Report, sure. AI, which are, and there's, pro- there's more, aren't there? There's like Gattaca, yeah. um, Bicentennial yeah. Man. Films set 50 to 100 years from now, but which, which do show the urban environment, give yeah. us an idea of what Chicago will look like yeah, in the sure. future. Yeah. And there's a sense I felt that those films were locking on to sort of a consistent vision. Yeah. That, in a way, probably a more realistic vision of the future than the Star sure. Trek one in which everything yeah, is yeah. shiny. But, you know, the idea that you would have the yeah. tenements. But. Did you see Corning's thing about the, the glass future? No. Uh, they, they, they did about an eight-minute future, you know, for things to, to advertise corn and glass. What, when when was this? Done? This is in the last twelve months. Okay. okay, and it's all about you know you walk in and you put down your your tablet on the counter, and instantly the whole counter lights up with a piece of uh, with with the, yeah. you know, the, the information you're using, which you can then fling up onto the wall yeah. and all this sort of stuff, which seemed, which looked visually looks fantastic, great looking image, but also is very plausible. Extrapolation from exactly what we're dealing with right now. But again, it, it kind of sounds like Minority Report. Yeah, what's well, what what Graphing up all those yes. things in midair. Well, yeah, all, all, all the wonderful choreography of it. Yeah. One of the things that I was watching a couple of nights ago, the Sci Fi Channel reran the original cut of Blade Runner. And I thought, that's, that's, that's a long time ago. That's still the most convincing future I've seen. Partly because all the high tech stuff is there. Uh, but at the same time, you've got this. Rain sodden, awful street culture, which which we have now. Yeah. And this is this is a novel, which this is a movie, which is what thirty 20, years old. Thirty years old now. Next year, yeah. Years old, yeah, and and yet it seems more believable. It still seems futuristic, but it's it's more and more a future we recognize one rather than the one we. Well, I, t- I tell you something happened to me um, probably seven or eight years ago. I was in London. It was a, mm. it was probably the last really. Long hot summer we had, and I was in—I don't know what I was doing in London, but I was—I'd come out of a theatre or something quite late, and it was um, down near Leicester Square, I think, uh-huh. and it was absolutely heaving with people. And of course, because it's London, you've got people from all over the planet. Yeah. Every conceivable race is there. Um, late at night, um, rickshaws <laughs> going past, exactly, yeah. right? Sounds and then right. I saw a guy with a mobile phone. Which was glowing blue. Of course, yeah, right. <laughs> I never see. I, I honestly, I thought 
fuck, it's Blade Runner. Yeah, I'm yeah, it's Blade, Blade Runner. Runner. <laughs> it's, it's happened. <laughs> Although the funny thing is, Sid Mead gets more credit for that than Hampton Fancher or even Philip K. Dick. Yeah. Because that's a design question. It's not a. It's not really a, an extrapolative question. And the design he got just today still seems utterly believable. Well, I watch that film over and over again, and every time I see it, I pick up some little detail yeah. in the yeah. background that just thinks, "Wow, that looks, fuck yeah!" He's, he's that thought about so, that. Yeah, you know, like a logo on the side of a police car or something that just looks, mm-hmm. still looks futuristic, mm-hmm. thirty years on, which you can't say, you know, Forbidden Planet didn't. No, it did not stand up as well. For, I mean, I love that no, song, but well, it no, sure. But it, but yeah. it was what ni- it, the mid nineteen fifties or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, so if, if, if you watch it in the mid nineteen eighties. It certainly didn't look remotely plausible. Yeah. I mean, I've been trying to sort of parse this myself because the benchmark I always use in trying to work out how old something feels to a kid today is Casablanca. Yeah. Because it's a 1942 film. I was born in 1964. Mm. So it's 22 years older than I am. Yeah. So if you go to a kid born today and go back 22 years, what's their Casablanca? <laughs> you know... Blade Runner is a Casablanca for it a kid is, born today. But, but, well, it's worse but, than that. It's probably something well, like yes, it could be uh, Jurassic Park no, or something. What, 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 no, yeah. I, 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 I think you're right about Blade Runner because well, there's, 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 so Blade Runner is like the Thin Man. There are two about. kinds of histories we're talking about here. Yeah. One is the kind of cultural, uh, technological, yeah. ideological history. The other is the history of attitude. Yeah. And we uh, people grew up in the 40s and they understood Casablanca because they understood uh, Bogart's attitude. If you get to Blade Runner... You've got Bogart's attitude moved into a cybernetic universe. But Harrison Ford's, especially with that awful voiceover narration, uh, which I hated at the time, and I'm thinking now maybe it was necessary. You know, I miss it because I, I, I to me that's, the, yeah. that's yeah. the definitive Blade Runner with the yeah. message. That, 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 but that gave the hard-boiled edge to yeah. it. That made right. it look like a Bogart movie. So attitude changes. Attitude stays the same. The technological, uh, te- technological background changes. The weird thing about Blade Runner when I when I was um, say twenty, mm-hmm. which is when I saw it for the first time, was a real a, sort of a strangely conflicted feeling in the sense that this is a really, on some respects, quite a grim future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always raining, it's dangerous. Yeah, you know there are sort of replicants running around. It's ho- you know it's a horrible depopulated future in which everyone's yeah. gone to off world colonies. But it looks cool. I want to be there. I'd yeah, rather I, be I, there than here. I, you know, I thought I wouldn't mind wearing a big, big coat like mm. that. And, yeah, all right. and then flying when around, you know, turned around and said, "Well, what would Bla- what would Blade Runner look like today?" And made Black yeah. Rain. Black yeah. Rain, absolutely. Yeah. Blade yeah. Runner is there today. Yeah. And, and when I when I uh, talk to Blade, talk to kids. I mean, kids who are not my grandkids are too young. They're the oldest one is thirteen, but they look at Blade Runner today and they think this is barely science. This is not science fiction. This is, if anything, retro. You know, wh- where's the texting? Where's the yeah. online gaming? Yeah. It's for the, from their point of view, it's a 1984. It's not a 1984 future. It's a 1984 world. Mm. And there's that scene where he places the video phone call. Exactly. And he's charged some exorbitant right. amount. Which is like, right. To us, it's well, that's what? About what yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. one dollar fifty or something. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also, I mean, it, it, it's one of the few portrayals of flying cars. You know, that yeah. you see sort of that, that great classic 50s science fiction trope. But you know what? That's well thought out. Yeah, no. Yeah. Because, I, again, I was watching it. The flying cars, apparently only the police cars have license to fly whenever they want to. There's this elaborate computer printout of how high they're going and, what, and what's in the neighborhood and so forth. In other words, somebody, and I doubt if it was Hampton Fancher or David Peoples, I suspect it may have been Sid Mead, thought if you're going to raise a car 30 feet into the air, this is the computer interface you need to have for that to happen mm. and it, it's it just passes in 20 seconds the thing I mm. loved about Blade Runner mm. is so much of the backstory is like a three second clip and you have to figure out what's going yeah. on so yeah it's not your flying yeah. cars of, uh, of, yeah. of, of 1939 astounding stories Frank R. Paul covers yeah. it's, it's flying cars as if somebody had thought through no not everybody can fly cars if you look at the movie most of the people are stuck with ground cars yeah. oh, sure. the police yeah. and a few elite yeah. ground yeah. cars and flying cars well it's late and we've got to the point of flying cars which are always optimistic <laughs> well, sounding so, so may, maybe we should sort of look to begin to wind up before we start to sort of digress overly and well, we're having ramble on you, Damn, you always do this when we're having fun John. <laughs> that's because I think that we need to you know, not overindulge ourselves oh. 
but there hasn't there, I mean yeah. there has not been a science fiction film which has placed you know created an iconic future mm. since Blade Runner I don't feel I mean there's, there's been attempts it's at, the best future I've ever seen in a science fiction film yeah. and I'm going back at least well certainly to uh, the H.G. Wells thing to yeah. you know, uh, Shape of Things to Come Shape of Things yeah. to Come which was a cool future but I never believed it for a minute no. Yeah. This one you believe for two reasons. One is it still looks cool, and B, about 80% of it is here. And that's to me yeah. is stunning. It's interesting that the two cinematic sets, sets of images we're talking about both come from the person who evolved into the most important science fiction writer of the 20th century, Philip K. Dick, who in 1982 would never have been seen as having been any chance ever of becoming the most important or arguably yeah. the most important science fiction writer of the 20th century. You know, we, we we ended up living in his century somehow, which yeah. is a very curious thing. When when we all thought we were going to live in in Heinlein or Clark or Asimov's futures, it was I mean, Foundation was the future, even though it never would be. Uh, not sort of you know the transmigration of Timothy Archer or Martian <laughs> time slip or you know Vallis or something. And yet that's that's what we're, we're all like nostalgic. I don't agree that. with that. I I I think that there's some validity to that. I think we're what we're living in largely is a misappropriated, oversimplified version of Philip K. Dick, of a handful of Philip K. Dick novels, uh, as as Hollywood producers reconstructed them. I mean, Total Recall is not a Philip K. Dick story <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. No, no. <laughs> and we also live in a world where a whole bunch of people sort of seem to work very hard to try and make neuromancer real. You know, that that's oh, yeah. the other thing that's happened. There's you know you when. When people talk about what happened to science fiction, you know, there's the whole thing about you know, you know, mm-hmm. Neil Stevenson has got this project, which I think yeah. is partly wrong-headed, about how science fiction used to inspire scientists, right? Right. Science fiction no longer inspires scientists. I don't know if it does, but it seems to me that in 1984, Gibson put out a novel that you know, inspired a whole generation or two of scientists to try and make something that may be fundamentally unworkable, as real as possible, simply because they thought it was really, really cool. Well, you can make the argument that 1984 produced an awful warning which technicians, let's not say scientists, made into a reality. The universal video surveillance of 1984 has happened in England. Yes, indeed. Uh, And it was intended to be an awful warning, but whoever it was that set up this universal video surveillance thought, that's a cool idea, so maybe 1984 was a blueprint rather rather than a warning. No, it's just case nightmare brain. Okay. On that cheery All right. note, thank you very much, Al. We thank look you forward. Gentlemen. I look forward to reading Blue Remembered Earth, and it sounds wonderful. Yeah, uh, thank you. Okay, so we'll talk and to you soon. As they say, it's good night from Reno and Reno. <laughs>